Welcome, everybody, to the Good Data Podcast. We have a great show for you today. John Diamond will be with us. John got his start in nuclear engineering and is now an entrepreneur and analyst in turbine power and data centers. And it's two very different things, but as you'll find out, they're related. He's a partner and consultant for a number of companies, including his new venture, a crypto mining facility called Ultimate Powerhouse. They're providing space, power, cooling, and connectivity for customers to collate their like crypto mining rigs. So, uh, full disclosure, my company actually did the engineering on the crypto mining facility. Uh, but unlike most of our jobs, John's company, Ultimate Powerhouse, actually did the design, which was this kind of out-of-this-world crazy design. that They basically made an air handler, like a normal building air handler, out of a room, and they stacked crypto miners like 10 feet tall. And the crazy thing is that it actually worked. It's working great right now. And uh, it was such a pleasure to talk to John. We talked about nuclear power, crypto, AI, cybersecurity, all the kinds of things that are right up my alley. I hope you enjoy this discussion. Let's go. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, very well. Yeah. Tired, but happy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way it is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's kind of a hot day, but it's been better than it has been for a while, yeah. so it's good. Yeah, yeah, um, But I just wanted to start uh, talking about your background a little bit, because you have an interesting, to me, background being coming right. from the critical sector from a nuclear right. engineering perspective. Right. And then bringing that to data centers. So first off, how did you get into the nuclear power sector? Actually, it's interesting. It came up just not long ago. Um, <laughs> so uh, this you'll really enjoy, right? I started, off, uh, I started off wanting to be an oceanographer, an ocean engineer, and uh, went to a school that had oceanography. And then I did my first summer sea term and was so seasick that I came back and immediately changed my major to nuclear power because I had a very influential uh, physics teacher in high school. Uh -huh. so that's what drove me for that. So what was what was the oceanography? You just wanted to... Jacques Cousteau. Yeah. I was gonna be in, yeah. I've been diving, scuba diving since I was 13 years old. So, yeah. so you like this scuba diving but not the boat? Yeah, the boat part was a little challenging for that me. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't until uh, a little bit after that my father explained that, oh, yeah, I had the same problem when I went to sea. I was like, why didn't you tell me this? <laughs> <laughs> and the Dramamine just didn't... didn't uh, I, I didn't take Dramamine. Oh, yeah. I just tried to muscle through it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so... So back to, you know, you're going to school. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about, you know, you had a... You said you had a influential physics teacher. Right, right. And that... That brought you to so I changed nuclear. majors to nuclear nuclear uh, science at the time, and then they changed the curriculum into nuclear engineering, um, which kind of beget uh, a job in the nuclear power industry, of course, yeah. right? So I worked commercial nuclear power for about 10 years, learned an awful lot about high reliability, high availability systems. Yeah. My wife decided to go to Penn for a master's degree, and uh, so she came down to Pennsylvania while I was still up in New England. Doing the commute back and forth on uh, weekends became kind of onerous. And somebody at the time was Shearson Smith Barney. They had a large 10-megawatt on-site generation plant, mm -hmm. and they wanted somebody to help them operate there for their data center to manage their trading floor and data center operations. Oh, okay. So, so. was that diesel? or what was Yeah, diesel, diesel power. Oh, okay. So nothing yeah. related to nuclear power at all, but I just they knew I had utility experience. Yeah. I was looking to land somewhere closer. I was watching the nuclear industry start to erode away yeah. and saying, well, this is going to be gone before I retire, so maybe I right. need to segue out of it. Much to my chagrin, nuclear power is a great thing. It's a yeah. great way to go. I could talk about that for like a really long time. Well, I'm interested in yeah. it, so we can talk about that. Okay. <laughs> you know, okay. I, I actually, I, <laughs> I am interested in nuclear, 
you know, it, there have been really three major or yes. slash minor yeah. meltdown events. Yes, yes. Chernobyl, Three yeah. Mile Island, and, and uh, Fukushima. Fukushima. Correct. Uh, yeah. So they really sour the... They, of the three, uh, Fukushima is the is worst. the worst. Yeah. And the reason is because nobody planned, nobody planned for that failure mode. Yeah. Right? So Three Mile Island is actually considered a success story in the nuclear right. industry. Right. Because you did the worst thing you could possibly do. You boiled the pot dry and thought the, the fuel was going to melt and go to the bottom, to the center of the earth. And uh, as it turns out, everything, there was almost no off-site release of radiation. Or radiation. Yeah. So, uh, so in the nuclear industry, it's considered a success story. Chernobyl was wild. It was people out of control with their processes, no right. processes, the absence of processes. What actually caused a Chernobyl event is when they finally scrammed the reactor the design on the uh, on the control rods did not have they weren't properly designed so at this super unstable portion as the rods went in and if you think about a car going down the highway at 60 miles an hour the area the density in front of the car is the highest so what happens is the same thing happened when these rods went in the flux in front of those control rods driving in actually caused it to go super critical and steam explosion Wow. So the steam explosion, there was no containment. Those reactors were not designed with the same kind of containments that you see in uh, Western reactors. And so it just blew rods literally out into the street, out into the yard. So there was fuel laying on the parking lot as people were trying to, you know, escape from it's the incredible. So, And the one thing about, about rods, if you can see them and there's no water between you and them, you're pretty you're, much a walking dead man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, just, it's even like hundreds of yards away or yeah, just... Yeah, hundreds of yards away. Yeah. Wow. So like if you um, line of sight pretty much, if you can see it, it's pretty much going to cook you. It's a slow death as well. Yeah. So as the stories that I read, which were pretty profound, they were circulated pretty well throughout the nuclear industry. Guys who walked out saw control, saw the blue glow, the, the uh, blue glow, the shrink-offs glow. Yeah. They knew what happened, knew what it meant, just turned around and walked back in and just continued to try to recover as much as they could. Wow. Yeah, they just knew it was all over. Yeah. That was kind of a wild <laughs> that was kind of a wild narrative that I read. It was very neat, right. uh, very insightful in terms did of Did it bother you that it's dangerous? Or did, did you not feel like it was dangerous? When you were uh, I never ever felt like it was dangerous. So I, I would spend a lot of time walking through the plant trying to figure out fer- failure scenarios that would cause things to fail. And quite honestly, uh, after working there 10 years, I could not come up with a single one that didn't require some so, so, sort of absurd scenario of, you know, terrorists coming in and putting the right. bombs directly at one place. And, and, you know, it just wasn't, I couldn't come up with anything functional. I'm talking from a practical standpoint. Right, right. But uh, the Fukushima, that was like, wow, that could that could happen any place. If you lose all, all off-site and on-site power generation, it's just a matter of time. So right. when you saw their first response to uh, Fukushima, what they were doing is they were trying to spray water up uh, to the highest level. Right. And the reason was because the fuel pool is up to the top. And so the fuel re- retains this incredible heat capacity yeah. after it's stored in the fuel pool. And they have this fuel pool cooling system. Without fuel pool cooling, without power, there's no fuel pool cooling. Without fuel pool cooling, you're evaporating all the water. Without water, you're uncovering fuel bundles. Right. Right. So. So that's that's not actually the fuel that's in the reactor. That's nothing that's to do with the, the reactor. Storage before the or reactor after. in and of itself was fine. Yeah. It was the fuel pool that was creating. Uh, it's not fine. Don't get me wrong. It's, right. Right. You know, damaged forever and probably beyond use. But it was the exposed fuel pool that yeah. made it impossible for anybody to go in and do any work without some sort of shielding being in place. Right. Right. Well, and that's I, I guess that's the other part of why people are afraid of nuclear is that. It lasts, you know, the half-life of yeah, uranium is, yeah. is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so well, well, I had this conversation. Uh, actually, interestingly enough, I just had this conversation. So at the same time uh, I was working in a nuclear power world, I lived not too far from a coal-fired plant. Yeah. And every day on the way to work, I would see barge after barge after barge of fly ash coming yeah. out, being tracked down. And the same argument was brought up is like, well, the half-life. But I go, what's the half-life on arsenic? What's right. the half-life on chromium? What's the half-life on lead? There is no half-life. Right. So all this stuff, all these pollutants are still there. Right. The fact that we know that we have to manage, you know, nuclear waste is, it's a great thing, you know. Yeah. So there's all sorts of, a lot of efforts and a lot of thoughts have been put into it over the over the decades. So yeah. it's, uh, it's I'm not. I'm sure it's gotten a lot better. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. Now it's, 
you know, the problem has always been is not being able to ship fuel off of a, a commercial site, mm-hmm. right? So spent fuel has just been collecting inside these fuel pools. And so what's happening is the fuel pools are actually becoming the choke point. Yeah. So uh, one of the, at least one of the plants that I worked at uh, ended up being shut down because they could no longer handle any capacity wow. for storing fuel safely. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a- and and I'll be honest with you. I mean, half of my mentality for going into nuclear power at the time was, I'm going to do like some big es- expose on nuclear power. I grew up in the Adirondacks. I'm an environmentalist, yeah. a, a real environmentalist, yeah. right? I, you know, I won't throw a, a piece of candy wrapper on the ground, right? Right. You know, an apple core, no problems. A candy <laughs> wrapper, absolutely not, right? Yeah. So um, I spent a lot of time just trying to figure it out. And when I got done after 10 years of being in the nuclear power industry, I was more pro-nuclear power than anybody I know. Because I look at it and I go, wow, you know, once a month you're sending off a cask that's got uh, resin that's just got all the waste associated with the plant, you know, in one little canister. Yeah. It's a lot easier to manage than barge after barge after barge going out every day. So. And, 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 you know, on a day-to-day basis, you're sending up water. You're sending up, yeah, you know, yeah, steam it's, into it's the just atmosphere. Wa- yeah, exactly. It's all yeah. just water vapor. It's not It's not even steam. It's just water vapor. Right. Right? So there's nothing being released from the plant. It looks ugly, right? <laughs> it looks like these big-ass towers are, right. uh, are are just, you know, spewing out all sorts of contaminations and radiation. It's just water vapor. It's yeah. just same thing that comes out of a data center's cooling tower. Right. Yeah. No different. Well, I mean, I could talk about nuclear power all day. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, super yeah. interested in yeah, just yeah, sorry, what's going to come we're... next. And uh, <laughs> me I, too, because <laughs> I said, you know, there's still there's opportunity. Like we, yeah. we we were stuck in in this kind of age of the existing reactor technology, and now I I'm interested in thorium. Mm-hmm. I think that that's not avenue, yeah. not that we have to talk about it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. you know, it, there there's obviously fusion is is a ways off. We have yeah. like, reactors that are starting to work on it. In fact. Down the street from us right. is one of the largest currently Princeton, operating. Yeah, Princeton uh, Plasma. Yeah, right, the Princeton right. Plasma Physics Laboratory. Yeah, right. And that's got a, I think, tokamak yes, type yeah, reactor. Yeah, so it's like yeah. a, a donut, a yeah, toroid. Yes, a toroid, um, right, that, exactly. That yeah, runs yeah. plasma yeah, around it yeah. and contains it in, in magnets. Mm-hmm. And then, sorry, you could explain this. No, no, no. Could, you're, <laughs> doing, you're doing way better than I can. Yeah. But basically, they're trying to you know shrink the... Uh, create a magnetic field that's strong enough to in, in, instill a uh, fusion, initiate right. a fusion reaction. So, And, yeah. I, I mean, they can do it, but it's just not producing enough electricity yeah, it's to not, it's not, uh, make it know, worthwhile. Someday, you know, it'd be great. Yeah. Uh, it, I, the, the current trend is to move away from nuclear power yeah. in all aspects. So that's why you're seeing wind and solar. Um, I'm a big proponent of uh, renewable energy, yeah. uh, solar I have less hope for yeah, uh, because of the square footage it takes to right. manage it, right? So, I mean, we used to joke, uh, you want to replace an 800-megawatt plant, just uh, put solar cells over Rhode Island. Just, you right. know, that's... Right. <laughs> it's, uh, so it's like... It's, it's gotten better. And, yeah. you know, also the, the storage. You yeah. Know, you're you're yeah. waiting for the sun and, yeah. you, you know, to be able to keep that keep right. the energy at a at a right. reasonable amount it's actually really difficult yes. so if and it's also a lot of people i don't think know if you're oversupplying to the grid that's a problem too yeah yeah uh, you you have mm-hmm. to like put a a big a copper yeah. yeah you have to yeah. shunt it to ground you right. actually have to get right. rid of it and right that's, right you know I, that's why the smart grid is important and yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely which no, is no. fun Gets back to data centers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and networks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because, you know, it's one of the things that really all everything right now in the marketplace is interconnected and it's interconnected through networks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where you are in the industry is in this really interesting intersection between a lot of things. Yeah. So let's get back into your data center work. Oh, so okay, you okay. worked you worked in the power plant and then you transitioned to actually working in for a large financial yeah. Um, and their data center and yeah. their trading floor operation. So they had about seven or eight megawatts of uh, UPS battery backup, yeah. and they needed somebody to, you know, manage the engineering aspect of it. Right. So it was all for uh, commercial enterprise type environments. So I did that for about seven years. A couple of merger acquisitions. I mean, in that time, Smith Barney went to travel, became part of Travelers and part of uh, Solomon Brothers, and then eventually became City. Right. Um, all within the same set of structures. So every one of those acquisitions, I was kind of tugged along to do the evaluation of the technology facilities. So, and then I started kind of 
not differentiate between what uh, what's a technology facility, right? So a technology fil- facility could be a knock, it could be a trading floor, it could be a, um, uh, as I would go on later on to do, I would become a uh, uh, designer for a grid control facility, uh, just a glorified knock, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really all it is, something like a PJM or... Do you mean uh, for the... Utility for, for utility, the, yeah, I got, I, got a, I got a chance to go back and play yeah. the utility world in that capacity again from a data center capacity. It was kind of fun. It was a good, good fun time. So. Yeah. yeah. Again, that, that kind of intersection. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Because the, yeah. the grid to manage it, yes. you know, because of that, keeping yeah. the power at the exact right frequency right. and, right. you know, not over. Load management. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the funny thing about changing careers like that is that they kind of grow on each other. Yeah. So did yeah. you have a trajectory that you were looking at? Or you no, just kinda no. I, I, <laughs> I just stumble. At one point, I kind of laugh about this. At one point, I was probably one of the foremost experts in the U.S. for nuclear steam turbines. And I'm not, it's not, not any kind of lauding. It's just, that's like, uh, you know, I, what, did my, what did my daughter say? She had a great comment. She said, I want to take up court tennis. And I was like, why? She says, well, uh, the minute I step onto the court, I'm going to be one of the top 100 ranked women in court tennis in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like going, yeah, that's kind of how it was in the nuclear steam turbine world. There's just so few of them, and I've had the I had the opportunity to be heavily involved in that aspect. So uh, my point is, when I left nuclear power, I left that whole career behind, and I now do nothing ever with nuclear steam turbines. But as you say, as you're going around, now we're starting to look at building data centers with gas turbines. Right. So all of a sudden, that's all starting to come back into play, and we're out looking at different types of generators and different types of capacities for that. And I sit there and go, okay, let's start dusting off the old memory banks on this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, well, yeah. Now, you know, data centers are, are not just small towns worth of energy, but, you know, large yeah, you know, yeah. megawatts of, of right. energy at any given time. Right. So yeah. you need power generation maybe on site. Right. So, exactly. You know, it's funny. It kind of gives you job security. Yeah. <laughs> right? Maybe, maybe not. I'm, I've never read to worry. I've yeah. I've never read to yeah. worry in terms of that. Yeah. Yeah. There's always something happening. I mean, it's the societal changes that have happened, you know, and my journey has been profound. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, everybody talks about cell phones and stuff like that. But just uh, a lot goes on where people talk about data centers using up so much power and how bad that is for society. And I counter that. I'm saying, well, if I can sit here and order everything I want online, I don't have to have, uh, I don't have to get in my car. I don't have to go to a mall. I haven't been to a mall in probably six years, Yeah. right? I don't have to go to a mall. I don't have to turn on lights. I don't have to power the mall. I don't have to do any of the maintenance associated with the mall. I don't have to come back into my car and dri- drive everything back again and then go out the next day because there's something else that I forgot. Right. So there's a tremendous amount of energy that each individual is spending just to consume something. Forget about finding information out just to consume, uh, you know, whatever it is that we do. Toilet paper, you know. Right. It just doesn't matter. So um, I find that data centers have advanced our society tremendously in that ability to maybe too quickly, instantaneously get get what it is that we need. right? Right. Or the information that we need. You know, my my books at home, my engineering books at home. Stacks and stacks, I've carried them around for four different states, right? It's like, what am I doing with these now? I can find out everything I need to know, you know, in just a matter of just going online and right. trying to find the information. It's pretty it's pretty interesting, And right? instantly instead of, you pretty know, quickly, indexable yeah. and yeah. searchable. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough to do those calculations, though. That's one thing that, that I've, I've noticed that, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it, there's definitely... With anything, there's causes and effects. It's yes. never a single cause and a single yeah. output. It's always there's the litany of inputs yes. where, okay, we have we didn't have computers. Now we have computers. Right. Now, uh, not only that, but we have to have data centers, so that's an input to the system. Right. But also, we get more access to information, more uh, level playing field in terms of yeah. education yes. uh, so that you yep. know it's it's democratized. But then that can be gamed. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, that's and clearly, yeah. 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 So yeah. it's, you know, it, anything that's introduced adds complication, yes. I think. And that's that's one of the things that is another interesting piece of the puzzle, that there's new pieces that are being added, like maybe this is a good transition to cryptocurrency. And, right, and, you right. Know, that's another field that you've been working on, which right. didn't exist uh, definitely 10 years ago. Didn't but exist in my knowledge base until last October. Yeah. That's how new it is for me, right? Right. Yeah. 
And so what got you into so, uh, crypto? So I was working at a large data center in Philadelphia uh, that didn't have very much traction. Almost no new tenants were coming in. And as I'm sitting there going, well, I'm kind of aging, right? I'm, most of the people I know are retiring or going elsewhere, right? So I said, let's start networking with the next generation. What's the technology that needs to be deployed inside these t- data centers that's going to be the next thing coming? So I started going to uh, meetups for and business school things for big data, trying to figure what out, how much capacity they need, what do they need for big data. And then blockchain became another one that popped up. I said, well, let's go see what blockchain is. And that's kind of what initiated it for me. I spent about six meetings just trying to understand what they were even saying. Right. Right. So, and I, I was patient. I had nothing else to do. I might as well at least attend and just watch. Everyone was very animated and very uh, interesting in terms of what their aspirations were for blockchain, which kind of got me at least to the point where I could hear what was people were saying before. People were just speaking a completely different language that I had no idea what they were saying. Right? Yeah. You know, getting wallets. And uh, I, I don't even know. Everything was just... Uh, it was quite daunting for an old guy like me trying to figure it out. But what I picked up from it is the ability to do transactions in a much better way. So I like to view the, the people I met were either anarchists or capitalists, yeah. right? People who are trying to change the way the world works or people who are trying to profit from the way the world works, right? So I found that quite fascinating. And both avenues were coming together at blockchain. Right. So it was very interesting. And, of course, that's how I I met you and we started talking about blockchain. And you increased my knowledge of blockchain significantly. So so I went back to what am I good at? What are we – our team is great at designing, building uh, data centers. Yeah. Facilities that house large amounts of data processing. Right. So I just said, well, why don't we create a co-location environment to house cryptocurrency or blockchain as I like to prefer to call it, blockchain validation devices, right? right. <laughs> Sounds a lot better than... Sounds a lot yeah. better in crypto, right? Yeah. <laughs> crypto mining or... Well, I think that's a lot of what people don't understand is that when people hear about uh, specifically cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, right. it sounds as though there's no real benefit to it. Right. But the benefit lies in that ability. Each each time somebody is mining that Bitcoin, even though it takes a, an enormous amount of power... right. You are performing a validation check mm-hmm. all the way back down the blockchain, and yep. that that has value. Yes. Question is how much value? Yeah, <laughs> as you said. And, <laughs> yeah. And and how are there better ways, better things coming down the line? Right. Uh, actual utility that's going to be coming out of that compute, mm-hmm. as opposed to solving hash functions, which right. is kind of almost by definition useless. Yes. You know, yes. that's that's sort of the point of it. Is Agreed. that. It's uh, it's a difficult algorithm to solve, mm-hmm. and you get lucky. It's almost like yeah, uh, yeah. proof of luck. Yes, <laughs> proof of like luck you, is a great way to say it. You somehow made yeah. this this lucky bet, and yeah. you got uh, you got a, a few Bitcoin out, out of the minim- yeah out of the millions of gyrations that you could computations you could do right one yeah. hits. We have to take a break. We'll be back in a second with John Diamond on good data. Today's episode is brought to you by GreenLane Design. GreenLane has been designing, engineering, and building critical facilities for over 10 years, including major enterprise customers as well as co-location facilities. GLD has designed and developed an integrated stack of design disciplines. If you would be interested in a free assessment, go to greenlanedesign.com, click on contact, and mention the podcast. Have you, you know, in terms of the other pieces of the um, the crypto landscape and the blockchain landscape, is there anything that excites you about what might be happening in the future with it? So, um, right. So I'm, I'm a bit both both capitalist and anarchist. Yeah, I'd love to see the middleman go away. You yeah. know, who doesn't want to see that happen except for the middleman, right? <laughs> but I also wouldn't mind being a middleman either. Right. <laughs> I hear you. If I could do it all again, I would rather be a middleman, right? <laughs> but but what's fascinating too is so we talked. Uh, I talked a little bit. I got into a, a kind of a discussion with my son. I was going to say heated, but it wasn't really that heated. It was very intellectual, and he was kind of saying, "Well, your your cryptocurrency is you know it's you use so much energy, it has no value, right? It's just a thing." And I said, "Well, it could have been seashells, right? 
it just happened to be at the time, uh, you know, like a hundred years ago, it just happened to be rocks that they pulled out of the ground that they put value on, right? Yeah. Now it was a useful rock. It was very malleable and shiny and didn't corrode. But still, that's the gold standard, right? And then with the eradication of the gold standard, now everything is just based on our belief in the economy of, of a country, right? So if you have that belief right now, American dollar, what could ever possibly happen to it, right? But then you go back to the Civil War and you look at, you know, the Confederate dollar became worth nothing after right. the war. The German mark became nothing twice, right? right? So you get these huge fluctuations that are always going to occur inside of any given uh, in, uh, in uh, any country's economy that's going to happen to everyone. doesn't matter who you are. It's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so if you go and you start spreading this economy uh, uh, out over the entire world, all of a sudden you've got a currency that trades without any problems and it's got a lot more stability associated with that. One country falters, it's not a problem. The rest right. of the world continues to trade and operate off that. So that's one thing. And then the next thing is, and yeah, it is va- it is based on nothing. But again, you know, financial transactions are based on seashells. They're based mm-hmm. on, you know, rocks coming out of the ground. They're based on people handing a green dollar over to somebody who's got like a, a multicolored euro, right? You know, right. it's a, <laughs> it's, it's what's, what is it? it it's something. Right. So think about the energy that gets spent um, printing, stamping, minting, transporting, uh, destroying currency. How much has got to be transported just in a Brinks uh, truck, the truck delivery systems for moving cash around to different entities. Right. If you think about how much energy that uses, it starts to, as again, it starts to kind of make you wonder. Again, the calculations are impossible at my level. but Well, it's also interesting that, uh, you know, all the banks have their data centers yeah. and that those data centers take up a lot of effort trying to validate all those, yes. uh, everything that they're doing along the line. Yeah. So you're not doing that work, which mm-hmm. takes X amount, which generally isn't computed. Right. You know, we don't, right. we don't know how much work that takes, how much just, energy it takes just to make, you know, big banks work. Every bank had its own check processing center for nothing but just check processing. Yeah. Right. That's, uh, now granted that's gone quite a bit. Everybody's dialed those back, but still, as you said, everybody has to still validate uh, the economic changes. Yeah. Or yeah. visa. Yeah. Visa. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. know, there's, there's still data centers all over the country that, that work with that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that are decentralized, but mm-hmm. have points of attack. So yeah. Yeah. you have to just g- gauge the system. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is this going to work? Yes. Yes. And I, yeah. you know, one of the things I'm really interested in is, is as a technology, it's not just Bitcoin. There's also Ethereum, which mm-hmm. can be used to make smart contracts that are decentralized, right. which is a big deal it's a huge because deal. you create trust between partners and mm-hmm. entities that otherwise would have to have a third party to, to create that trust. Exactly. And also, I mean, it doesn't 100% eliminate it, mm-hmm. but it, it does help. Yeah. And also, there are other people coming up, bubbling up to the surface of creating actual usable com- computation out of those mining yeah. operations. So, that I'd like to learn more about. Yeah. I, yeah, it's it's interesting. Because yeah. you, you create a token for mm-hmm. the work done, right. and then you can reward people for doing the work. And it, right. it, it could be that instead of having big data centers, you have a lot of that's, data centers that are all kind of all working through this tokenized stuff. That's the anarchist stream, yes. It is a little bit, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it, you're still making money off of it. Yes, so. yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's it's a little bit, you know, it's it's decentralized. Yes. So yeah. th- it's funny that there is, there's an intersection between the anarchists yes, <laughs> and, there is. and yeah. the capitalists. Yeah. And I think that's how you know the change is happening yeah. when, when yeah. disparate groups come together and, Agreed. and agree on something. Agreed. Uh, well, you know, part of it's going to come down to governments, and and it sounds like mm-hmm. you know, it's. I think it's a good indication when governments actually start making laws and yeah. uh, doing what they're supposed to do and trying to regulate. Yeah, it's. It means that it's a maturation of the actual. Yep. It was a dream, and now it's becoming yeah. a real business function. Right. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I agree with exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's, but it's also, I can understand being scared because some of these coins are not traceable. Right. Or, or right. potentially not traceable. Right. Um, and you, you get that money laundering. And, mm-hmm. and again, you have your causes and your effects. Yes. There's always yeah. reasons that things happen and then multitude yeah. outcomes. You know, right. being a physicist, you probably know that 
Oh, you must know <laughs> that that you know you, you can distill a, uh, uh, a system down to like just particles, and at that point, it's very easy to uh, predict what's going to happen. Except that when you get to the quantum level, yes. it's all it, like it, it you can predict in a little bit wonky on you. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, that you whole can, string theory thing starts right. to happen, right? You yeah. can you can predict <laughs> things in a in a sense like you have very accurate predictions of mm-hmm. what. The range of things is going to happen, but yep. you don't actually know exactly what's going to happen. And you end up with Planck's constant, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. You know, it's stuff that I love thinking <laughs> I about. I know. It but is great. Yeah. yeah. And like the, I, I one time read, oh, there's a Planck, Planck length. Yeah. And it's, yeah. You know, yeah. you can, you can you know, like, distort it into all the different yeah. pieces. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Yeah. I want to yeah. have somebody from the Princeton lab because we have some of that the- That would be uh, a fun one. Arkani yeah. Hamad, I, you know, if I could get him, that'd be amazing. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The, these incredible minds that are just down the street. It's like, oh, yeah. just come here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's okay. Literally, it might go, be a you can walk hot. here. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's just stuff I, yeah. I love thinking about. Yeah, but yeah. It's cool. Regardless, it's, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but quantum computing, is mm-hmm. that something you've thought about much? Yeah. Uh, no, I have not. Oh, okay. But it would be fun to to explore that. I guess that's yeah. the next meetup I'm going to. Oh, it's huge. <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah. you know it has the power, conceivably, to disrupt all mm-hmm. of cryptography. Right. To possibly make the algorithms that are are behind the cryptocurrency deprecated. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, if you had a powerful enough quantum computer, you could do those SHA-256 right. uh, hashes mm-hmm. incredibly quickly, conceivably. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the idea that quantum, uh, that computers may someday turn to the, the quantum realm to mm-hmm. do computation, and if they're able to create that quantum coherence to enough uh, qubits, you know, right. they can do order of magnitude more computation. And each time they add another qubit, it raises another order of magnitude. Wow. Uh, yeah. I yeah. That's to, the crazy part. I need to start, uh, <laughs> I need to start doing some research in this. Good. But they barely, yeah. I mean, it, it's in such in its infancy. Yeah. Like the, yeah. the one uh, truly commercial product that is being sold right now, just, just was shown to actually exhibit some speed in the most absolutely specific application, a speed increase over regular computing. Oh, really? Yeah. It's yeah. called D-Wave. No. No. Yeah. Sorry. But I'm, anyway, yeah. it's it's interesting stuff. It, it's like it, yeah. it's just turning on. So uh, I want to I, I want to go down this avenue for a while because <laughs> you're you're just scratching the surface on my awareness now. Yeah. So uh, so. Uh, physically, what is quantum computing? I guess is it. It's not. Dis- you're not talking about distributed compute right now. You're no. talking about no, no. I know that. Yeah. That's, I'm just trying to. You're talking about actually using quantum effects, mm-hmm. uh, electron spin, right. or uh, you know something that's yeah. actually uh, part of a particle, right? Um, where you can you know get uh, yes get particles to yes uh, like cohere and and um, yes. I've, Blanking on some no, of the what you're saying, I, I understand. Uh, I've done no reading on this at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I have uh, seen allusions to the t- to the topic because, as you said, everything is interconnected at the particle level. Right. So, uh, yeah, yeah, what you're saying is very neat. It's almost like a physical mechanical compute. Right. Right. Well, yeah, right. And, um, entanglement. I think. Yeah. You know, entanglement. It's, it, it has yeah, to do yeah. with entanglement, and the more things that you can get uh, within that quantum mm-hmm. coherence, the more that you can run a wow. quantum algorithm yeah, yeah. through it yeah. and each time you add one of those particles that are mm-hmm. in um, yeah. I follow what you're saying yeah, yeah. each thing is going to have its own reaction and have some as you said and, entanglement and right? so it's either yeah. it's either one zero or a combination of one and zero mm-hmm. and you don't know that until the whole thing decoheres and you actually view it mm-hmm. at the end of the, the thing wow. so you have to have it you know it has to be wow. maybe two degrees kelvin Right. Very, very cold. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you have to make sure that there's no interference from the rest. So it's got to be in right. a huge black box. Right, like, right. you know, like the yeah. black box of uh, Schrodinger's cat. Like yeah, you can't, yeah. You can't yeah. see in. You yeah. can't let anything get yeah. in. Nothing but, can uh, impact it, right? Yeah. If you do that correctly, there's a good chance that a lot of what we have right now for security kind of mm-hmm. falls away. Right. <laughs> wow, wow, um, wow. But the nice thing is that then you get quantum security mm-hmm. where you entangle two uh, particles and then you send them in two different directions. So the only possible way that you can 
share information as if those two match. Mm-hmm. So then you up your game. Yeah. You know, you're actually using the, the yeah. quantum world to you're create taking it beyond, encryption. Yeah, beyond hashes. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, you know, it becomes that, yeah. that next step of the war. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. it, it is almost like the the nuclear uh, arms versus conventional arms. Yes. It's, it's that yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. paradigm shifting, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? But that, that's fascinating, right? Yeah. I mean, so uh, – uh, this has like been like one of the fun parts about being in the data center industry for so long, right? So I started off with uh, mainframes that took up a room, right? I mean, they took up a huge room, and all this physical support required for that cooling units and uh, uh, another room that just was storage. You know, the, there was a lot of infrastructure associated with mainframes, right? So it took up huge amounts of space. So what happened? They were running out of capacity. A new technology took place: CMOS. So two CMOS racks came in and replaced that one room of mainframe. Right. They used about the same amount of power as they went through the configuration, but they processed like an order of magnitude more information in that same in that same uh, array, right? Um, and that kept going. Then blade servers came in, right? And then everything just keeps going up. So what I'm seeing is this repetitive change in technology that is accommodating still what I believe is a function of Moore's law, right, is we're still process- we're still doubling the amount of information we're processing every 18 months, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I know Moore's law is associated with chips, but this is effectively the same thing. Yeah. But what you're seeing on the power and cooling side, the way to process this is you're seeing like a sawtooth curve. So you would see the power for all these mainframes as they ramped up would keep going in step with the amount of processing they were doing until you had a technology shift. So when you went down to CMOS, suddenly the power just plummeted back down again yeah. until you continued processing more and more information until you finally hit the limit of that technology and then you saw a shift to uh, blade servers and then right. the power once again dropped back down. Again, it would ramp up, back up again until you went to the next one. Now with hyper-converged technology and you know, kind of bringing everything together is pretty fascinating in terms of what it's doing in the power. And you look at the same thing for storage, spinning disks. I remember we were the first shop to have three terabytes east of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Took up one floor and was probably, God, um, I would imagine 40 tons of equipment. Right. Right? And um, then, you know, you pick up a, a flash card now. Yeah. <laughs> it's damn near yeah. a terabyte, right? Aquari- well, yeah. you, I think yeah. you, you can fit uh, chip-wise, you can fit uh, three terabytes in a square inch. Right, right. It's, it's exactly. incredible. Yeah, it is. Exactly. So, I mean, like what's, you know, now the, the role of going to steady state, um, you know, memory all of a sudden is changing everything. So yeah. we're not spinning disks anymore. We don't have that that energy component. So the amount of energy it takes to store information and storage is like insignificant by comparison to what, what it used to be, right. right? And that's what I keep seeing is over and over this, this sawtooth curve happening that's in lockstep with our uh, digitization of our society. Right. Never slowing down uh, since I've since I've been involved in the industry in the last uh, 30 years, nothing has slowed down. Right. Right. It's always getting faster and better and cheaper to do more information. Talking about architectures and talking yeah. about changes, one of uh, this is going to be a little bit of a, you know, roundabout segue, but one of the architectures that is taking that compute to the next level is it's not shrinking the die size of the right. processor. It's going to GPUs, right? Graphical processing units right. that instead of you having eight cores, you have two hundred cores or mm-hmm. more, uh, and that there's a huge boom in GPUs because of the crypto, right? And so, just in Ultimate Powerhouse, which is your company, right. you have uh, probably thousands of GPUs right. running. Right. Um, you know, eight cards in a, in a given right. chassis, and exactly. And, you know, stack floor to ceiling, and yep. it's one of the amazing things about going into the the UPH room is that you just see so many computers, yep. so much going on. You, you're in a wind tunnel. It's it's yep. it's just overwhelming. It is. Yep. Uh, and there's more compute in that facility, that little. Shop, yeah, yes. Then there is probably in ten data centers, or you know, yes, absolutely. In, in, a, in a lot of places. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. And it happens to just be doing fairly simple hash functions, but yeah. it's still doing so many millions right. uh, that 
it or trillions, you know, right, a lot right. of them, you know, Terrorists, right? Yeah. when it's not just the, the GPUs, it's also the, the ASICs, which the are ASICs, application right. specific integrated right. circuits. Integrated so, circuits. Yeah. you know, you're, you're doing terahashes yeah. with those where you could only do kilohashes with regular architecture mm-hmm. a few years ago. Right. What that means is that there's these computers sitting out that could be doing Massive computation. Yes. Massive, massive computation. Yes. You think supercomputers. Yes. You have a supercomputer. You're just using it for a specific function. Yes. So this is a long segue. I like it. I like <laughs> to it, get though. to uh, AI, <laughs> which is another thing we wanted to talk right, about. Right. Right. Uh, that those sa- that same architecture, that GPU architecture, is perfect for AI. Mm-hmm. That yes. uh, the neural nets that that are really coming into vogue right now run fantastically well on these GPU cards. Mm -hmm. And the computers that you have, they're not designed for that, but they could very easily be reconfigured reconfigured for that. Probably have to change out maybe the motherboard, but definitely two of the cards in it. And you Mm -hmm. could have... You know, something to rival a Los Alamos or, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. incredible how, how much power there is. And I wonder if you would mind talking about what you see. That could be a sea change, I'll say, especially if crypto goes belly up, that there's going to be a huge glut of these GPU rigs for cheap that could go to co- startups that would uh, want to do that. So uh, not to say that it's going to yeah. go belly up, but yeah, do, yeah, do you yeah, have yeah. a sense of where that's going? Um, I have no sense at all as to where it's going in, in terms of the crypto world. So our, our business plan was uh, potentially to be out of business in two years, right? Whether the SEC comes in or whomever uh, steps in to manage that. So everything we've done has been super creative in terms of uh, standing up this technology facility that is processing oil, on average about 500 watts a square foot. Yeah. which is about the size of what a Google or a Facebook data center is doing. It's uh, it's pretty intense. Um, not that we're doing anywhere near the magnitude that they are, but just in terms of square foot, uh, power per right. square foot density, it's pretty profound. So uh, what you're saying is very exciting to me because it's like, wow, there is a there is an afterlife, right. you know, when this is over with. And I'm not saying that it is going to be over with. It's going to it's going to morph into something different, right? Right. Um, so uh, my I remember a long time ago when we all found what the WWW was. We were like, this is exciting. This is like pure freedom. This is like we can say, do, interact, anything with anyone. And then internet porn came in, right? And then and <laughs> right. online gambling, right? And then right. all of a sudden the restrictions started happening and everything just started kind of collapsing. And now uh, in many times it's more difficult to do things on the internet that used to be just simple, right? I right. mean, just simple searches now have become more and more difficult to do because everything ends up becoming an ad or, or it's got some kind of commercial background before you actually be able to used to get to serious information very quickly. Yeah. It's not so easy anymore. Right. You know, I mean, you used to get to some profound information. Uh, and so now trying to get to that is takes more effort or more knowledge or more capability on right. how to search properly, right? Or what avenues to search down. So uh, that's what I suspect is going to happen with crypto is right now it is the Wild West of what's happening. People are doing ICOs for crowdsourcing, right? Yeah. As a function of crowdsourcing, people are, tr- you, know, they're, you know, again, trying to raise money. Some of them are nefarious. Some of them are, you know, right. altruistic. I've gone to blockchain meetings where guys are trying to raise money for, um, you know, uh, Africa, for, for yeah. villages in Africa. You know, it's like a great way for them to uh, be able to go and uh, transform uh, a society. Yeah. So there's there's both sides sitting there in that marketplace, right? As well as so. Can you talk about that? I'm I'm really interested in the Africa component because that again that's a, a way to do social good with right. technology. Right. And it, you know, that there are a lot of nefarious people working in the crypto space. Right. And the ICO, the initial coin offering, is a way for them to kind of. Uh, generate revenue without necessarily generating anything of substance right. yet. So yes. there have been a lot of kind of bogus ICOs. Yeah. Yes. And there's been a lot of money wasted on that. Yeah. But can you talk about uh, just if you have any information about how that is working in Africa and, and making people's lives better? Um, I wish I could remember a guy was going through and doing uh, tours all over, but he was basically basically using the ICO process to help fund basically African communities gain water and, and agricultural needs, right? Right. So that's his, it was, it was a, um, 
it was a not-for-profit type organization, but he was using uh, the blockchain as his his vehicle um, to get there. Hmm. And it was pretty interesting watching these guys. It was also interesting watching how the capitalists in the room when he's presenting were like, I'm busy now. I got to go. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So it was, it was kind of funny watching that. But I don't uh, have the, the specific details of how he's doing that and what the methodologies for that. But it was fascinating because there were at least three people who were trying to do social good in this. And it was a whole bevy of people just going in yeah. and giving presentations on what they're trying to do in the crypto world, right? So guys were trying to do ATMs, guys were trying to do trade platforms, you know, so you could trade between Ethers and Bitcoins yeah. and Light and Dogecoin or all that right. stuff, right? So um, it's fascinating to kind of watch how that moved around. The actual, again, this was all occurring when I was pretending this. It was all occurring in that stage when I was still trying to understand what people were talking about, right? Right. But it was fascinating to watch how they were uh, moving around in that in different business sectors associated with it. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I know that you have your your fingers in a lot of pies, and you, yeah. you see, you're an entrepreneur, so you, you see a lot of different opportunities in the marketplace. And I know that you're right now kind of knee deep in crypto right. as well as data center. But is there anything else that is exciting or, or sort of on the horizon? We did start going down the road of AI, but my 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 application of artificial intelligence is way more rudimentary and different than what the big guns are doing. Right. So I like to go to the to the meetings and watch them talk. Again, they're talking way beyond my my knowledge base, my skill sets. But the practical application uh, for me in my world of operating technology centers has pretty much been along the lines of if I've got a really good building engineer and I sit him in front of the building automation and I tell him to start looking at all the data coming in from that machine, what I'm going to get is a guy who's got a productivity of roughly the best guy I'm going to get on the field is going to give me four hours of good time over a course of an eight-hour day, right? right? So if I go and I staff with three of those engineers that are monitoring at 24 hours a day, I'm going to get 12 hours out of every 24 hours if I've got the best guys going and the smartest guys going, their ability to be attentive to what's happening and to report on it and to make the analysis of what's going on, I'm only getting 12 hours out of every 24 hours, right? right. And I've had to come up with roughly $300,000 worth of salary to support that, right? right? I mean, that's kind of what, what we're talking about. So uh, if you go and you take, if you take some of the basic functions and if you can start gathering data and using the data, which you can now, I mean, I, Facebook is doing, everybody's doing, Equinix, they're all involved in data uh, mining and using the data to uh, analysis. But uh, just as a good low level example, if you think about how many computer room air conditioning units are running to cool one data center, it might be 50, you know, it could be more than that, right? But if you have 50 air conditioning units and you do something as simple as just monitoring how much power it's drawing, right? So normally they're drawing eight amps. If I know if it drops down to six amps, something's going on, right? So if I look at the, just that, that factor of just looking at the power draw of every one of those computer room air conditioning units with respect to each other, so I have 50 data points and I've got 50 um, amps that I'm reading, right? Currents that I'm reading. And if one goes high, I know it's using more energy and it's doing it for a reason. Something's going wrong. Right. And if it uses less energy, then something's going wrong. A belt's slipping and the fans are not moving as quickly. It's not capturing enough air. There's a blockage, right. something like that. Or um, if it's using more amps, there's a binding up of the fan or the uh, the compressor is, uh, is working too hard. Something is going on. So or, that, or somebody has a door open on or, the... <laughs> or somebody <laughs> yeah. has a door open. If yeah. they're all ramping up at the yeah, same yeah. time, then the door... So you start to establish what is normal, right? Mm -hmm. Just on power, just on current alone, what's normal for 50 units? And if you're monitoring five different data centers, you know, now you're at 250 units, right? Yeah. And if you're at, you know, 10 times that, it's, it's an order of magnitude. Everything starts to get more information just on that type and style of computer room air conditioning. You start to figure out what's going on. And if something's going on, if it's an acute change or if it's a more chronic change or something that's more trajectory, you start to see something going wrong and you can actually create uh, exception reports, right? right? It says, go look at this. Something is different now. Now you have to go look at that. So that's a rudimentary way of doing it for the facilities management world. Now to take it up, to kick it up a notch, if you start looking at, okay, well, that's just the power draw. 
Now let's look at what the return air temperature is or what the ter- what the flow is. So right. now if you start doing if you start doing a heat balance on this air conditioner, right? So if you start looking at the flow in, the flow out, water's going through it, so how much water's going in, how much water is going out, what's the temperature going in, what's the temperature going out, and then look at the airflow, what's the airflow going in, what's the airflow going out. You're doing a constant heat balance. If you can keep doing that, you're going to come up with what's normal for that condition. And now if you start looking at what the actual load is and tying what the actual physical IT load is, now you're going to be able to juxtapose that data with your power, your heat balance, and now what the actual physical load is. And then if you look at the outside air conditioning environment, right, so you have a a freezing cold day or a 100-degree day, it's going to change the computation as well. So you start calculating all these things in, you get more and more data that you can start analyzing, and you can start establishing more discrete norms of what's happening and more predictability. Mm -hmm. So my dream, although most people don't ever want to go down this road, is do maintenance on nothing. We call it run to failure, right? Maintain nothing. Let the equipment tell you when things are going wrong. Right. Other than that, just let it, don't touch it. Just let it run, let it operate. Because most times when humans touch equipment, they end up introducing some factor that causes another type of failure, right? Or the same failure, right? right? So that's kind of the world that I've been working in is trying to play in that environment and bring that forward. Again, the big dogs are really good at it and they're uh, getting better at it with the amount of data that they're bringing in. But trying to democratize that and bring it down into smaller data centers is really kind of like my little pipeline dream that I've been working on for the last uh, 10 years. So, Can I throw in energy efficiency into that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Energy yeah. efficiency is totally what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Right? Because, you know, one, one of the things about building automation systems is that they use very old algorithms. Yes. And they're, uh, they're not algorithms that work well with each other. So the, mm-hmm. the PID is the normal algorithm for right. running, uh, building automation systems. Proportional, integrated, integrated. and derivative. Yeah. Right. So so that's just a bit of calculus that they run. Yep. And most people just run on proportional, which is the stupid, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a dumb, you know. Information uh, in, information, information out. Yeah. yeah. And so when you put two of those PID loops together, they fight each other. And then you start stacking those up with 50 units. Right. You have, you know, Your, thousands of different things that could loop together. Correct. And cause... Problems. Yeah. And so you've got one unit heating, one unit cooling, right? Yeah. 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 And the more, and fixing that actually dumbs down those PI, the PID loops. So, mm-hmm. you know, to, to have a system like an AI system or, or something that actually runs on yeah. a smart learning system. Yes. You get, well, I think Google already sort of did this, but yeah, yeah. They, they have an AI system that will take all that data, learn from it, and then figure out how to do it a little bit more efficiently. Right. Right. And I that's exciting to me. Super exciting. <laughs> yeah. Super exciting, right? Yeah. And yeah. so so you get those two big, big benefits is, mm-hmm. is the maintenance and also being able to actually get the efficiency that you want yes. out of the units. Yes. And, you know. Yeah. I'm very bullish on that. Me, myself as well. But it takes a lot of And it, there's a lot of and there's a lot of inertia to change how the marketplace is. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 But the more that I, I was talking about Don Finley, who is mm-hmm. uh, we have yeah. both you know, good friends. Both, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he's a great guy, and you know he's in the uh, sort of AI space, but the machine learning space. And I was just talking to him. I I was taking a Python computer language right. class, and a very early lesson in that is, oh, hey, build this neural net, and it's just like maybe. 50 lines of code yeah. to, to do that. Yeah. And it's a very simple one. It's um, just for matrix manipulation. So it's super simple. But it's a learning computer that you made in 50 lines. Right. And, you right. know, it, 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 as much as you need a lot of computation to be able to do some of that uh, mm-hmm. machine learning stuff, it's not as hard as you See, might think. I, I hate hearing that. <laughs> so I'm not a programmer by any means yeah. and I have very little knowledge. I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm dying, right? So <laughs> so um, uh, you, you, I sit there and I go, God, I wish I had that, that skill set because I know it's not hard. I can't believe it's hard, but the implementation of it is almost impossible <laughs> with vendors and contractors yeah. and trying to – I've tried to do it myself. And it doesn't – it seems unreasonably how difficult it is, right? right? They still keep bringing back the human component of, well, oh, I'll just readjust the values. It's like I don't want you to readjust the values. Right. I want the machine to adjust the values. Right. So it's like trying to get the right people in my industry 
it's far more physical. Like it's made from plumbing contractors, electrical contractors, you know, and so the BMS comes out of the mechanical contracting world, right? So trying to bring in the intelligence of what happens on the IT side of the platform has been really a quite a difficult barrier to cross. It's one of the biggest problems I have. A lot of times I'm sitting there looking at the guys on the network side, the Knox, and they're monitoring all the network transactions and all the computer processing. They have all the information I want. Yeah. They know how much energy the chips are using, right? right? They know what the fan speeds are running at. They know how much airflow it is. They have all the information I want. Why can't I just use that information into my facilities management model, right? I don't know. I, I mean, it kills me all the yeah. time, right? I'm just like, that's what we're trying to do. Right. You know, we talk about data centers, and everybody's always talking about cooling, but you're not trying to cool a data center. You're trying to cool the chips. Yeah. That's all you're trying to do, you know? Right. And by the way, just to wrap this up and, and finish this thought process out, so nuclear power, there's all these tech specs that are all designed to keep you into a safe operating condition. And the ba- very core, the very basis of nuclear power and all these uh, information, all these uh, restrictions and all the NRC rules and everything associated with it, it's all centered around one thing, cooling the fuel pellet. So it's the same right. model. It's right. like I can cool a fuel pellet and all the restrictions and all the operating conditions and everything that you do is all about preventing the clad from becoming overstressed and thermalizing and breaking and releasing radioactive products mm-hmm. into the water, which you then have to filter and clean up. That's what the tech specs are all about for nuclear power, cooling the chip. And that's what I think our data center industry needs to focus on is stop focusing on cooling data centers or cooling equipment, cool the chips. Oh, so. I'm 100% on board with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just a quick thing. Yeah. There was an Emerson study that said that every watt that you reduce uh, on the chip level, because there's the cooling and the power supply and the UPS up above that, that actually saves, I think it was either 2.3 or 2.7 watts. Wow, I can total. believe that. I can believe that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, but nobody really cares about energy efficient servers. Right. They right. care more about yes, you know, improving the, 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 environment. the data center itself because yes. that's easier to get your head it's around. E- exactly, yeah, um, yeah. And they don't want to. Nobody wants to mess with the server admins. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like this weird black box that nobody wants to think yeah, about. Oh, yes. you do what you do. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, yeah. that's, that's one of those things that is a huge. I think is a is a huge opportunity, especially if you could take that chip stuff and get it into the, the building management yeah. system. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's a real opportunity. Yeah, I agree. So. I think we're running out of time, yeah. but I want to just ask you if there's anything that you want to talk about your business and, you know, if you have basically a plug. <laughs> oh, I, I, I really don't. So, um, you know, the, we did the ultimate powerhouse. It's a, uh, it's a prototype that we built to see if we could stack cryptocurrency machines into a data center where it was very low scale, very low cost to stand up probably an order of magnitude less, not maybe not, or at least 12 times cheaper for us to build out uh, the crypto t- cryptocurrency site than if we built out uh, a data center site. So traditionally, you'd be spending about, uh, say, 6 million bucks for a megawatt data center space to build out. Right now, we're looking at uh, $500,000 to build out a little bit over a meg uh, on that. So very fun from an engineering perspective. We've had a blast. And now we're just looking for the next level investor to uh, take us for, so we can continue the process out there, you know, and just keep going down that path. That's uh, the fun part. So Yeah, I mean, I'll say yeah. I've, I've seen it and I, I actually, you know, yeah. was involved in the design. Yes, and yes. Uh, it is it is amazing how well it's working. Yes. <laughs> I'm actually really surprised it's 90, working as well as it's working. 90 degree days and yeah. we're without cooling and it's just pushing enough air through, right? Yeah. Which is just mass flow rate, right? Right. It's all just... You know, how do you cool something? It's Heat is mass flow times the temperature differential. Yeah. So if you raise the temperature dif- or you lower the temperature dif- differential, right? So you got a 90-degree day as opposed to a 70-degree day. All of a sudden, I've lost 20 degrees of temperature differential. Right. So how do I do that? I have to increase the airflow or, right. or cool with a different uh, heavier medium. So, yeah, so it's about mass flow rate. That's, that's what we're doing. We're yeah. jamming more air through that u- those units, and that's why... You're able to remove that much heat, and there, yeah. there's a lot of air going through. And there's a lot it's of air amazing. going through there. And, uh, it's like walking through a hurricane. Yeah, right? I, I, I think that the, you know, the things that you've learned from this first scale. Yeah. Uh, you know, you say it's small scale, but a meg is not. Yeah, nothing. yeah, yeah. You know, it yeah. is. You, you walk into it, and it is uh, sort of overwhelming to see walls and walls of yeah. computers yeah. and uh, yeah. all humming, and it's loud, and yeah. you know, there's so much air going through it, and I think to be able to get that to the next step. 
Yeah. It's very doable. Yes, yeah, I agree. Oh, no, it's yeah, a scalable it's, it's, thing. I yeah. can do five megawatts. I can do 10 megawatts. Right. It's easy to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, my personal opinion is that data centers are converging a little bit yeah. on not being as super high reliability yes. to, to be able to yeah. – um, get the data to be, you know, uh, application redundant, mm -hmm. which we could go into. But anyway. Boy, I, could, I was just getting ready to launch on that. Thanks yeah. for stopping me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, the, what you're working on now is very similar to, I think, the data center of the future yeah. in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. That, you know, as we get into that sort of hyperscale stuff, mm -hmm. this isn't just crypto. Right. That these architectures, yeah. you know, make sense for, for other types of yeah. stuff. Yeah. So... That's why I love talking with smart guys like you, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about the smart part, but I do enjoy talking yeah, to you. Yeah. But I, I really appreciated that. That good. was a great conversation. Yeah, I, very I, good. I, yeah, I yeah. enjoy talking to you. And yeah. um, I hope we can maybe do this again. Yeah, absolutely. All good right. enough, man. Thanks, John. Nice job. That's our show. I'd like to thank John Diamond for speaking with us and thank our sponsor, Green Lane Design. Remember to mention the Good Data Podcast to get that free assessment. Our music is algorithmically created by Juke Deck. Check them out. Uh, try it at jukedeck.com. J-U-K-E-D-E-C-K.com. For Good Data, I'm Drew Farnsworth. We'll talk to you next time on the podcast. <laughs>